Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget the donate button. A razor thin majority for Biden relying on the mail in vote. This is the election result Trump and people like Steve Bannon expected. They were right and the polling was wrong. Again, Bannon declared a few weeks ago the war would begin on November 3rd, and here we are. Trump has already declared victory and is saying the Democrats plan to steal the election. This is without question the latest news conference I've ever had. Well, that's the opening shots. Get the troops ready for battle. What might this war look like? Will the American financial elites allow the political system to descend into chaos? Can they prevent it? Will the Supreme Court issue another partisan decision, as they did in 2000, handing the election to the Republicans? After Trump's disastrous role in allowing the pandemic to get out of control, why was this election even close? And assuming Biden does take office, and that's anything but assured at this point, will he have the guts to confront a Republican-controlled Senate and a fired-up Trumpian mass base? Or will he, quote, try to bring the country together by giving the super rich and the far right exactly what they want? Now, joining us to talk about all this is Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He's a retired United States Army Colonel, former Chief of Staff to United States Secretary of State Colin Powell. Larry is a distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary. And he's a member of the National Task Force for Election Crises. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Good to be with you on this uh, most interesting day. <laughs> well, you, uh, you're on a task force for election crises. You got your crises. <laughs> uh, so what are you guys thinking? I think you had a meeting today of some sort. Uh, we did. The uh, webcast today was mostly for major media, national media like the New Yorker, AP, and so forth. Um, but we had an opportunity to email, exchange, and talk beforehand. And frankly, uh, your characterization, and that might change, I'll admit that your characterization is a bit off, I think, from our analysis. We see things happening pretty much the way we predicted they would happen. I might add the way the Transition Integrity Project's war games went, that it's going to be extremely close, that there are still, as of noon, for example, 30 million votes to be counted that there is a real satisfactory, very methodical process going on all across the country right now, a process that could have been much swifter had the Republicans, and it was Republicans, not kept states from changing their laws so they could start counting these new huge volume of early votes earlier. They have to, in these cases, start on the, on the day of the election. Um, but it's going well. It's going extremely well. We had a report on violence across the country. There was a little bit here, a little bit there, but not anything like what some of our scenarios predicted. That could change also. But it's pretty much going the way we assessed it in one of our scenarios, and it's pretty much going the way we would like it to go. That is to say, the laws are being followed. Legal action is being taken. Legal action is being supported or thwarted accordingly. 
votes are being counted. That's what's going on now. No more ballots are being cast whatsoever. They've all been cast. Now they need to be counted. And in some cases, according to state law or, or other people's objections, they're going to be recounted. And we got to have all that done by 14 December. And we pointed out today that in most elections of the past, since World War II, we have had the counting go all the way up to the last weeks in November. So that's what we anticipate this time. The one disquieting thing I heard was from one of our really talented electoral politics experts that we might have a Hayes Tilden event ultimately. Which, which means a, what? A complete tie or an indecisive, ambiguous result that gets resolved by the Constitution. <laughs> and as I've said many times, that's something you could drive a Mack truck through in terms of the way this goes. If Pelosi becomes the president, the House and the Senate have to decide and they have to agree, um, it gets to be a real messy, messy proposition. Uh, well, before we get into that, and, and we should, let me just say my introduction wasn't an analysis. It was a bunch of provocative questions to get you going because sure. uh, I tend to... Typical, typical newsman. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I lean towards that the system and the institutions will assert themselves. And when I ask the question, will the financial elites allow this to completely spiral out of control? Because it's... The, all the various institutions and political representatives, I shouldn't say all, most, uh, depend on the financial and other elites for their livelihoods. Um, I, I don't think they'll let it get out of control, uh, but we've been yeah, surprised you know, before. But, but let me just, let me just let ask me, you this. Let me say this before you get yeah, off ahead. that, because yeah. I think you can lay at the feet of Charles Koch and all the allies who knew they were allies, and maybe even as importantly, all the allies he had who didn't know they were his allies, working at the grassroots level, disdaining Washington, not even caring about Washington, working in the states to take power. And when you look now at the states and what the Republicans have done in the states where they own the governor, and both houses, or one of the houses and the governor, or both houses and the Dems have the governor, those are the states that are usually the ones that are perturbating the process. And Koch knew that. He got into the states and he got the states. So do you think, as Trump is hoping, this ends up at the Supreme Court? I don't think so. There's certainly the possibility of it. But I don't think so from what I'm seeing right now and what I'm hearing in our briefings. Uh, I, I think we're probably going to have a really squeaky finish, maybe where one person wins in the Electoral College, just like we did in 2016 and 2000, and the other one wins the popular vote. But of course, the Electoral College vote is the decisive vote. Or one wins in both, but the other one just won't stop contesting it. Uh, well, right now, it looks like Biden's likely to win both, but not by much. Uh, why don't we just dig into that a bit? How the hell is this election close? That's a wonderful question. Uh, it's the reason I said uh, in our preliminary remarks before we came on the air that I think we've just moved from 1850 to 1856. And you as a Canadian, rightfully so, said you didn't know much about our Civil War. But I'll tell you, it looks like we are divided 
precisely the way we were in those pre-war years. That is to say, 50-50, roughly. And most political scientists will tell you, you can't govern in a democracy, even a pretend democracy like we are increasingly. You can't govern and maintain that facade if you're 50-50. You simply can't because you can't forge compromise. You know, Paul, the last time we really forged an important compromise, I think it was 2011, maybe it was 10 when we passed it, 11 when we ratified it, this, the New START Treaty, nuclear weapons. And even there, there were a hell of a lot of Republicans that voted in that almost one-third against it, because it takes two-thirds to, two to ratify a treaty, of course. I think that's probably the only treaty we've ratified of consequence in the last 30 years. That's an indicator. We cannot do it even on nuclear weapons, or we do it barely on nuclear weapons. We barely got a two-thirds majority to renew that treaty. Um, and it's coming up in February for renewal again, and Trump's policy so far has been anything but positive with regard to its renewal. And Putin's been literally begging him to get off the dime and do something about it. The uh, Bannon-type forces, and and the forces inside the Republican Party that are allied with him, either ideologically or even organizationally. And I don't know that he individually is so important, but certainly he represents uh, some force, pretty serious forces, not the least of which uh, people like Opus Dei and uh, the far-right Catholic organization and so on. And we know they have influence in the military and, and so on and in politics. The fact we let six of the nine justices be Catholics is beyond me. Absolutely beyond me. <laughs> I think back to when John Kennedy didn't think he'd get elected president of the United States because he was a Catholic and the American people thought the Pope would give him orders. And now we've got six and each of them looks if is, if they're not actually like they're members of Opus Dei. <laughs> yeah. So this is incredible that yeah. we would let this happen. So, don't these people see this as a sort of, uh, I don't know, last chance? The fact that the Republicans are likely to control the Senate is going to mitigate what I'm saying, because they can't give, if I understand correctly, there's no way to give statehood to uh, Puerto Rico and D.C., which would completely change the electoral map. But if, but if the Democrats don't control the Senate, and frankly, even if they did, I don't know if they got the guts to actually do that. But Nor do I. But the fact they don't control the Senate gives the elites an enormous control over this Biden administration. Not to say they wouldn't have had all kinds anyway, but they can't pass anything serious now, like this big green infrastructure plan. And uh, I mean, to me, that's the real tragedy of this election is that even though the Biden climate plan uh, has gaping holes, especially the reliance on carbon capture, at least there would have been a conversation about effective climate. Uh, this is off, kind of more or less off the table, unless Biden can really do stuff by executive order. How much can he do by executive order? Not a lot that isn't immediately reversible. Um, and I don't see him as anything more than a one-term president. So you, you have it for four years, it's barely executed. It's very randomly executed too, because executive orders are never very well executed. And then you have a reversal of it when the next president comes in. 
I'm somewhat encouraged by this legislation that's on the Hill right now for a national infrastructure bank. That legislation is well written and there is interest on the Republican side. And there could be a couple of issues, that being one of them, we desperately need to do that. And we're not gonna finance it with taxes. So this is an innovative way to finance it. Um, that could be an issue where we see enough compromise, enough interest that we could have something happen. And that's desperately needed. Uh, let, let me go back to where we were, because I, I sort of jumped ahead in the conversation. Sure. If Do some game theorizing with me. If you are a Bannon or Bannon type and you're in that cabal, uh, what what weapons do you have to try to steal this I mean, steal this election because the uh, usually what Trump and those people do is whatever they're planning to do, they accuse the other side of doing. Yes, uh, um, they're very much like the communists. Uh, <laughs> communists don't believe anything they can't prove, and they can prove anything they believe. Yeah, well, I used I used to think everything the United States said about the Soviet Union was more or less true, but everything the Soviet Union said about the United States was more or less true. <laughs> anyway, given all of that, uh, yeah. what 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 I understand quiver, your question. Yeah, what could what can they do to try to create a, a what would amount to a kind of judicial coup? If if it is as we heard today, proceeding fairly smoothly, the vote count is going on, and that if it's left alone and reasonably efficient, we'll know something in a week or two. Um, and that something is a slight win in both the Electoral College and the popular vote. I think it'd be more than a slight win in the popular vote. And it's Biden. What then can they do? Well, they can start a racket in the press, uh, in the media in general that belongs to them like Fox. But there's a lot of radio, talk radio and other similar things out across the country that belong to them too. They can start a, a, a sort of a, a, a tidal wave that will make it, I think, virtually impossible for Biden to, to rule, to govern, to do anything significant. And I tend to think that would be their, their smartest move and I don't mean smart in the sense that I'd support it. I just mean that would be a move that would give them the presidency probably for sure in four years, and Pence would be their candidate, of course. They'd move right on back where they were, and they would probably have done significant damage, which is what they're seeking with regard to the Democrats, in the process. So much damage that maybe uh, the Democrats, unless they could get their act together, and they haven't shown me any indication that they can. Uh, would be, as I've said about the Republican Party in the wilderness, instead the Democratic Party would be in the wilderness. Why, why, do, you why do you think after four years of sabotaging uh, or, or restraining a Biden administration? Because it's going to make all those people out there who were formidably behind Trump think not only they were right, but convinced two or three of their colleagues that they were right. And so you're going to get even more title wave for the, the opposite. One of the ways you do this political game is you make your, your opponent look really bad. And in that consequence, you become the rescuer because there's only two of us. I'm just rereading Bill Sapphire's book, Scandalmonger, which is about Washington, Adams, and then Jefferson. And it's about Hamilton, 
Burr and really Madison and Monroe in the middle of it all combating for the heart of this nation at its very beginning. And it's a marvelous book. And Bill Southard did a tremendous job because the words flowing out of these players' mouths, whether it's James Callender and Sally Hemings, or it's Porcupine and Cobbett, the British citizen who was the Federalist mouthpiece, all these people, the words flowing out through Sapphire's pen are from their mouths or from their pens in letters and so forth. And you go back and you find everything we're seeing right now, right there in the very beginning of the Republic. You find the Hamiltonian who really wants to be king. You find the Jeffersonian who is as slick and underhanded as anybody you can imagine. And he wants the farmers and, you know, the, the French and he's not, not put out and put back or put off by the French Revolution and Napoleon. It's, it's almost like reading about today without all the technology. It, it, you realize it's always been this way. It's always been vituperative and bitter and personal and shenanigans in the background and money, money, money. You wonder whether Hamilton really was a good secretary of the treasury. I mean, you know, this, this book just blows away the Broadway version of Alexander Hamilton as Aaron Burr blew the real Hamilton away. And you, you have a little bit more respect for Burr when you read this, although you don't have much respect for any of them. You even learn that Washington cheated on his expenses and, you know, got money that he wasn't supposed to get. <laughs> so you don't, you don't expect that they can, assuming Biden wins all the races he is now leading in, and that seems to be what all the television pundits are suggesting, uh, you don't see there's a way for, the, for Trump to prevent Biden from coming to office here. Unless he really wants to go all the way and has people who will support him in going all the way. And by that, I mean some of the scenarios we looked at that we didn't necessarily take all that way, but we certainly talked about it. And that is that uh, when he's losing, he's got a considerable number of people out there. So far, most of whom we haven't heard from, a little bit in Southern Florida and Broward and Miami-Dade, a little bit in Texas, which got a lot of visibility, um, cars driving people off the road and so forth. But he's got some people out there that if he really wanted to call them forth, use his finest rhetoric to call them forth and to contest this long drawn out vote count or its results, it could really get messy. Yeah, so let's, I tend to agree with you that it won't, even if it gets messy, eventually the institutions will assert themselves and, yeah. and Biden will win. Um, so what does this mean for the Democratic Party? I mean, I, I think one of the things this election has revealed again, but perhaps even more so, is the Corbett Democrats actually don't have a way to talk to whole sections of the country, uh, whole sections of the working class, meaning that the media, which is Democratic Party aligned, whether it's MSNBC, or CNNs, most of the major networks, really, uh, the word, most pe a lot of people don't watch them. They don't listen to them. And, and they, they, they listen to Fox and the radio shows you were talking to. But the corporate Democrats have actually lost the media battle so profoundly that they can't influence uh, you know, at least ha almost half of the voting public. 
you're putting your finger right on it. I was on a show last night with the UK and we had Americans, we had Canadians, we had Australians. Um, and there was a mystery on there about how we could be so divided and so ramified in our views on both sides. And yet when the expert on media began to talk, he nailed it in my view, he nailed it. Why do the American people not see Trump's management of the COVID-19 pandemic as a damning factor? Well, because they don't know it. They don't know it at all because Fox has not been presenting it to them and they don't watch anything else. Should they stumble on something else, it's immediately fake news. Bang, it's off. They're not going to listen to that. They're going to tune into Rush Limbaugh or they're going to tune into Fox or whatever. No one listens to the other side, period. And you can't break in. I've found that out myself in going all across the country. You, you can't talk to people on the other side of the aisle anymore because they will not listen. You are the enemy and they think you think they're the enemy and never the twain shall meet. That's how we've become so polarized. And it's, it's interesting because the, the financiers who are supposedly against this kind of right wing, uh, the, you know, the, the liberal billionaires and multi multi-millionaires that finance the democratic party, uh, it's kind of obvious what to do, which is either set up a competition with Fox or, you know, buy out the uh, a significant ownership of Fox, uh, but they don't because yeah. I, this is a lever of power for them. They, they want this push from the right, even if it's, you know, it may go a little too far sometimes. It's useful. That's part to of it. This. That's part of it. Um, I remember when I was campaigning uh, for Jim Webb, Mark Warner, and Tim Kaine, when I uh, really sort of switched over to Obama after I served the Bush administration. And I remember coming out of a middle school rally for all three men, Kaine, Warner, and Webb. And my wife turned to me in the parking lot and she said, you know, these Democrats aren't really bad people. Not like those Republicans we've been mixing with all these years, uh, who are a bunch of high-powered lawyers and don't really socialize with you if you're dirtier, you know, you're dirtier than shit because you're not one of the high-powered lawyers or whatever. You're not one of the cognoscenti, you're not one of the elite or whatever. You're not Colin Powell or or Henry Kissinger or somebody like Boyd, C. Boyden Gray, you know. Um, these Democrats are all right. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, but they don't know squat about how to politic. And I still believe that. They don't. They simply don't. And they don't understand that their party at the top is brain dead, utterly brain dead, from Schumer to Pelosi, from Pelosi to Schumer, from Hoyer to Menendez, they're brain dead. They will not allow their young people to come up. They will not allow them to grow and mature and take committee positions and so forth. It's crazy. Uh, I had a Democratic woman say to me the other day, who is in charge of one of the most powerful Democratic groups in Virginia, I just don't believe how utterly soundproof these people are. And I said, what do you mean by soundproof? She said, nothing gets to them. <laughs> they believe their mantra, they stick to their mantra, and when it falls apart all around them, they look up and say, well, tomorrow's another day. <laughs> You're talking about the corporate Democrats, the leading yeah, Democrats. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, well, because because their nest is feathered or whatever that expression is. Uh, yeah. 
they're looked after. So this is a game they play. They may believe in certain things, but if they lose, they don't really lose. As long as the game gets played in accordance with the rules or somewhere close, what we're skirting around right now is avoiding the rules, leaving the rules, and maybe having violence. That's going to scare both sides. And you would think that would energize them to do something. But I think right now they're all thinking with crossed fingers and toes, we'll get through this. The institutions will hold and we'll get through this. And even if Trump wins, we'll get through those four years and we'll be back in power and so forth and so on. The system will continue to work. I'm sorry to inform them that it's 1856. Well, there's one big difference between now and 1856. As little as I know about American history, when I put on my Canadian hat, which is there was no climate crisis in 1856. See that much I know for sure. And no nuclear weapons. These yeah. two things I know for sure. Yeah. So, however, the Civil War would have turned out at that time, and we know how it did. It wasn't the end of human organized human society. To quote Chomsky, organized yeah. human society wasn't at risk. And now it is, even if Biden takes office, he, I don't know, through executive order, can he have a, a trillion, $2 trillion green infrastructure plan? I don't think so. I, I don't know what he was really planning anyway, for real, but on the face of it, if there isn't something like that, and there isn't a, a real plan to lose another four years, and if you're right, uh, it, this creates the conditions for a Republican win in 2024, and add another three, add another three or four annual trillion dollar deficit to the already twenty three plus trillion dollar aggregate deficit. Well, so, I'm not so worried. I'm not so worried about that because you know uh, there's a very interesting study done on how much wealth there is in private hands in the United States. Uh, wealth meaning after liabilities, assets. Uh, yeah. And it's, I think it was Brookings Institute. It's something like $98 trillion are in private hands. So even if there's a big government debt, it's actually mostly a domestic debt. And two, if you had to... Uh, it's about uh, 50, no, 55% domestic. It's about 45% yeah. other than domestic. But if you had to, you can tax that some of that $98 trillion, and it wouldn't take very long to get rid of that deficit. So the yeah, deficit let, me, part, let me see, let me see you do that. Well, that's without question. That's the real story is that they, they'll tax it. They'll tax it out of working and ordinary people. <laughs> they, yeah. they won't tax the rich, but at least, you know, it's there. If you had, if you're ever in a position. To and every, win that every, fight. every time I pick up a major Asian paper, I find there's another little deal over here where everything's going to avoid the dollar. Everything's going to be denominated in renminbi or maybe yen. Um, it's going to avoid the dollar. Creeping, slow movement toward eliminating, as Charles de Gaulle said, that most pernicious weapon America wields, the power of the dollar. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then when inflation takes off and we can't deal with that inflation by devaluing our currency, because it will be a disaster if we do, I'm, it's going to change the whole ballgame, in my view. And then you're going to see these people come out of the woodwork, maybe, but will it be on time? Will, it, will they be able to arrest what's going to happen when the world decides to hell with the United States and to hell with our currency? Well, that's a whole nother conversation. 
And um, at the same time, long, oil, long time off oil proceed. Well, maybe not. So I, I might even live to see this and I'm 76 oil may be, and I think probably already has crossed its tipping point. So the fact that oil sales are delineated at least in the majority in dollars these days, although that's changing too, is going to become a non-factor in less than a decade, probably. So where's our power other than our bullets and our bombs? Well, let me get back to where I was headed because I don't disagree sure. with that. But if Biden, assuming he takes the office, assuming they lose the Senate, if he doesn't come out with an extremely bold climate plan done through executive order, if it, maybe it gets reversed if the Republicans win in 2024, or maybe with, with enough pressure from the people, and this is where I'm headed, uh, there's an actual bold plan that excites people. Uh, maybe it doesn't, maybe the Republicans don't win in 2024. Of course, the next few years are going to be a deep economic crisis. And it's in some ways an advantage to Biden that the depression is going to get deeper as the pandemic continues to get worse. Because Wall Street doesn't mind a big stimulus plan right now. The, the, I've heard interview after interview on Bloomberg Radio of Wall Street hedge fund guys and all the others saying, just keep the money flowing right now. We're not worried about inflation and so on. Which in theory, Biden can- Worked well in 2008, didn't it? Well, it's a little different now because it's a much deeper crisis now. And there is is a need to get money, uh, perceived need to get more money into consumer spending. We're in 07, 08, they didn't give it much of a shit about that. Um, certainly if you listen to the financial press and all that, they recognize if you let the consumer demand collapse, this thing goes on for a decade. Um, so there's a, there's, there is a, a place here where under pressure of, of, uh, of, of the people that actually get the urgency of the climate crisis to use executive orders with a really bold plan. If you and- tie, yeah, if you tie that, to what's happening in the marketplace. And I'm amazed, frankly, at what's happening in the marketplace. I I have key people in the citizens' climate lobby all across the country who are sending me correspondence almost daily, usually multiple pieces of correspondence. Um, And what's happening in the market right now and what's happening in states with regard to getting rid of coal-fired power. If you look at Trump's promise to coal miners, it's a joke. It's a total joke. They're going away. People are going to natural gas. They're going in Iowa and Texas. They're going to wind and solar, for example. It's happening. We are changing. Um, I looked at my Ford stock and threw it away. I didn't want to own Ford stock anymore because they don't get it. They simply don't get it. I think the last time I looked at my Ford stock, it was $5.75 a share. That's an indicator. The market is going away from the technologies that are most contaminative. And it's going towards those that are either regenerative or less contaminative or both. So the market's going to take us to this place, whether it does it on a timely basis or not is a huge question. So he needs to time these executive orders and coordinate them and make them in sync with what's already happening in the market and encourage that to happen even more. The the most powerful way you do that, of course, is with subsidies 
which is what, guess what, the state of Texas is doing with wind power and solar power. Been fought mightily by the Republicans in that state, but it's gaining. It's gaining every week a little bit. And so if you let this market go and you help it a little bit, as government can do, as FDR did, for example, you could change this whole thing overnight. The big question is going to be, are we going to do it fast enough? Yeah, if it's really dependent, I think if it's really just dependent on market mechanisms, it will never be fast enough. It's got to be government market cooperation. I mean, I think that's just clear. (laughs) There has to be a massive investment in sustainable energy projects, wind and solar. And, and, and refurbishing of buildings. I mean, what needs to be done is everybody knows. And, and the math has been done. And one of the things Biden has to do, and if it has to be through executive orders, so be it, uh, promise all the workers that are working in the fossil fuel industry a just transition. Biden has used the words a little bit, but why wasn't he campaigning on that point in, in uh, Pennsylvania and some of the other places with fossil fuels? I'll be fuels? getting money probably getting money from somewhere that wouldn't have liked it. <laughs> I guess, but it's, ins- you know, it's, it's such nuts. a pernicious, pernicious influence campaign out there. Yeah. The fossil fuel industry's yeah. money. They're terrified of it, but obviously that would have been a message in Pennsylvania that the whole society created this problem. The whole society has to chip in to pay for the solution. You can't sh- sh- uh, stick it on the backs of fossil fuel workers. I mean, it's obvious. And, and the math has been done. It's, it's, it's a pittance amount of money in Pennsylvania, like Bob Poland did the math, the uh, economist. Yeah. But getting them it's to a, trust you is a real, you know, in a political sense, getting them to trust you that you're going to do that when you say you're going to do that, even if you say you're going to do that, that's a challenge. It really well, is a challenge. I agree. But I think the reason Biden didn't do it is what you said in the first yeah. place, because yeah. then you're really acknowledging you're phasing out fossil fuel and that's going to really piss off the yeah. fossil fuel industry. Yeah. And, the, and the Chevron station owner up here at the top of the hill, <laughs> everyone else is going to see his livelihood going away. Well, unless everybody gets taken care of and, they, yeah. you know, it, it would be a fraction of the money they've used to prop up the stock market. Exactly. A fraction. I, I, I watched this guy up here in the, in the BP. Now he's got a whole bank of Tesla power generators. He's got a whole bank of places where, and people are in there using it because sure. Fairfax County is full of Teslas. There, there, there's three or four Teslas around my car every time I drive somewhere. So it's happening. I mean, and as soon as he finds out he can make as much money out of that. And besides that, he's going to have to, because there are so many Teslas around that's going to change that. But how do you, how do you scale that up all across the country? And how do you help it with, like you said, executive orders, government action, and so forth and so on, when the other side is trying to keep you from doing that? Well, you just got to say, it's the, forget bipartisanship. Mm. Forget crossing hands and arms across the aisle and all the rest of that. You know, Obama just, wasted eight years with that shit. Absolutely. He, he gave us Trump because of that yep. shit. Yeah. All right, well, let's pick this up again when we know who's president. (laughs) Sure. All right, thanks very much for joining us, Larry. (laughs) Take care. (laughs) Thanks, bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget the donate button.